Hi, this is Angel Wilson, and welcome to Spark Up. Thank you for joining me in my lovely little corner of the internet on this podcast. We're going to be talking a lot about autism, but not just autism itself. We're going to do a lot of dialogue talking to actual autistic people, getting their perspectives on autism and how it's looked at in society. We're also going to be talking to providers who provide services for autism and how they kind of see and approach autism. And we're also going to be talking to family members and get their viewpoint on what it's like to have a family member with autism. And we're going to have dialogues with all different kinds of people, including those Some of those dialogues could get a little deep. We might talk about some some touchy subjects like racism and access to resources, but these are all topics that we know need to be talked about. So I hope you'll join me on this journey and I'll talk to you soon. This is Angel Wilson, and welcome to Spark Up. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast and my little corner of the podcast world. It is great to be back with you. I have another lovely episode today where I get to pull in a uh, not only like a guest, but another Black provider in the autism world. And as you know, season two has been kind of all about that, kind of really looking in at not just the Black autistic community and the families that are in there, but also the provider side, because this has been brought up many times that there's not a lot of us in the field at all. So whenever I do find Black providers, I like to highlight them, I like to bring them on, and I like to talk shop with them. Hello, everyone. My name is Kwatiba Davis. I am a board-certified behavior analyst. I am also a licensed applied behavior analyst, and I cover the whole assessment department at my company. Um, I started as an education teacher. Uh, I started into uh, special education because my daughter was diagnosed with hemiparesis. So she went through early intervention services, and I wanted to learn more about what she would be receiving. From there, I started at um, a 60-40 school, and what that means is it will it was 60% students with um that were neurotypically developing, and then 40% students with disabilities, and we worked in one classroom. That's where I learned about applied behavior analysis. Um, So from that uh, that one school, it built my whole career and trajectory into uh, working with individuals with varying disabilities um, and abilities. So from there, I moved to New Jersey, and I worked in an underserved population with children who had... um, economic struggles, and they had behaviors or display behaviors in the classroom where teachers cannot manage. So I served on the INRS team uh, with the school district to support teachers and behaviors um, in the classroom so that we can get uh, those learning uh, struggles under control so that they can learn the curriculum. From there, I moved to Florida, and I served as a behavior interventionalist uh, in a charter school. And I supported teachers with students with disabilities. I served on uh, the IEP team. Uh, to support families. My main goal was to support the families, especially the families who felt like they were lost and they didn't have the answers um, to specific things. And just the jargon that was used and those meetings where they didn't understand, but they didn't want to commit to anything. Um, And then once I left that school, I sat for my boards. I served as a clinical supervisor in a small clinic in Delray, where I gained most of my training. 
Um, and then from there, I started up a company with um, someone in Port St. Lucie. And this is what brought me to this company where I currently work. And I served as the corporate director of assessments. And now I am currently the vice president of assessments dealing with initial assessments in ABA and the diagnostic world. Awesome. I know you recently got that promotion. So congrats on that. That's awesome. It, like Thank I you. said, it's always good to kind of see uh, people of color kind of be going up the, you know, the ranks, so to speak, in this field. Because like I said in the beginning, it's kind of rare to see that quite <laughs> to be to be perfectly yes. honest yeah <laughs> so what kind of uh right. you, you got you kind of answered this a little bit of going into how you kind of got into you know become the road I guess to becoming a BCBA what kind of got you first into um autism like how did it how did you first get introduced to it um what were your thoughts of it in the beginning you know things like that so when I when I worked at uh, the school in New York with the 60-40 makeup, I had a lot of students in my classroom with autism. And they engaged in a lot of automatic slash sensory, what people understand automatic behaviors to be. Um, and, and their behaviors were so severe where they would pick their eyebrows, pick their eyelashes. And I'm like, what are they doing? Like, what is going on? What is this? Right. Um, and, and you saw that it hurt and that was evident by their faces scrunching or them, you know, making all these moves with their body. And I'm like, but why is he doing that if it hurts? Um, and so I had one teacher that I worked closely with and she did tell me that, you know, he's diagnosed autism. And I'm like, what is that? I didn't even learn about autism, um, in college. So when, when we discussed different courses with, uh, special education, they didn't tell us about different disabilities or the varying disabilities that we may come into contact with. Um, so I went and I learned about autism and the success stories. And it's funny because so many people hear the bad, you know, stigma of autism, but I heard so many success stories when I started to learn about autism. And then I heard about behavior analysis and I'm like, all right, this sounds great. I want to learn more about it. I want to learn more about this community um, and, and just people with or individuals with autism. Awesome. Um, I, I definitely kind of agreed with what you had um, said about how like in your education, it wasn't really talked about because I know mine, I, my master's is in mental health counseling and autism was never brought up at all <laughs> in, in any of it. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it's it doesn't surprise me that in other fields it wasn't really brought up. And I think that's why, again, a lot of us, I think, got our training going into the field itself and, you know, kind mm -hmm. of, yeah, kind Absolutely. of going in there. Um, one thing that, uh, a lot of us in the, uh, guests that I've had in the past, particularly those who are also in the ABA field, like, like yourself, is we've had a lot of like dissecting about like the field, how it's presented, how, how it's viewed versus how it is. I know that, um, the autistic community, especially kind of older autistic people, I guess I'd say like in their thirties and up, uh, have a really really negative view about it. And even, you know, I myself, anyone who's like listened to the podcast for a while knows I've told the whole backstory of like my experience of ABA and how it was not the fluffiest of introductions. And it took like other people in the field coming in and kind of saying, Hey, you know, that introduction you had, that was not how it should have gone at all. <laughs> like, like that, that is not like, just, just forget that. Cause that's not how it was supposed to go. Um, one of our former, uh, guests, Christian was one of the first ones to kind of tell me that I've had other professionals kind of tell me like, yeah, no, that's not, that's that's not it, you know, kind of thing. And we're sorry that's what you felt about it. So 
I wanted to kind of ask you, like, what are, um, are there certain things that you might've heard about um, ABA for better or for worse and kind of what your reality of it, I guess, is, if that makes any sense. I think 50% of the families I have worked with have told me about all the negative stigmas they heard about ABA and around ABA and punishment procedures and shocking and electrocuting Mm -hmm. and making their child wait and uh, some of the stories were scary. And <laughs> interestingly enough, we do not use punishment procedures at all unless they're absolutely necessary. We always stick to positive interventions, so positive sometimes where culturally, if I walk into a home uh, with African-Americans, they're like, what? You don't mm-hmm. let him do that, right? So, <laughs> and we have to teach them different ways to interact with their child. And when we talk about punishment procedures in this field, Uh, we don't discuss it as a layman would. When you think about punishment, people think about when our moms would say, go to your room, you can't do this, you can't do that. But a punishment procedure is not that at all. It's just removing something from that individual's um, environment, right? So we will call that punishment. Um, But it's it's nothing where it's going to hurt the child or it's going to injure the child or build upon some type of trauma. No. Gotcha. That's one of the things that's like a big concern connected with um, ABI is that there's there's one center in the United States that still uses skin shock therapy and ABI, ABAI is still kind of inadvertently supporting them. And that's that's a big issue. And there are, there are people in the ABA field who are now coming up and saying, hey, no, shouldn't be doing that. For the most part, I think the majority of the field is is like, nope, that's not the way that we want to go. And I'm, I'm happy yeah. to see like, you know, folks like yourself and Christian really kind of like speaking up on that and kind of, you know, letting people know like, Hey, that's not what it's about. And that's not, you know, what it means when you say like, you know, punishment procedures, that's not what we mean when we, you know, we're talking about like, you know, changing behavior and so forth. And, and, you know, the difference between, like you said, punishment and, and punishment procedures. Yeah. So, so just, just so everyone's aware, there are two different types of punishment procedures, right? What you just described would be a positive punishment, right? Something added to that person's environment that will hurt them. Um, And then we have negative punishment. Negative punishment is a removal of something, right? So anything negative in ABA is a removal. Anything positive is an addition to the environment. Um, But no, we will never use that type of therapy to (laughs) support a family or child or an adult that's receiving services. Um, I'd love to get your, your viewpoint on kind of like where you think ABA is now versus where it was. Cause I know that there, um, I know with a lot of us in the, who got introduced to the more, I guess you could say like negative or inappropriate side of ABA. If we even hear the name Lovis, it causes a knee jerk reaction of like, like, like immediately <laughs> like, Oh, that guy. <laughs> so Started yeah, thing, yeah, but... <laughs> I know, I know. And so um, I want to get like kind of your take on, on like, you know, then versus now, like what, what is, what has changed? What hasn't changed? What's been adjusted, you know, kind of, and again, I know that that conversation can go on for hours if you let it, but like, just yes. kind of like in general, the big things that you would want, you know, the community families to know about, this is what it was. This is what it is now, basically. So ABA therapy is and can be life-changing, but it's all about consistency. It's all about getting a family's buy-in, building that Mm -hmm. rapport so that when we walk out of your house, 
you can maintain those same interventions and implementation of programming that we put in place for your child or the adult that's living in that home. Um, I'm not going to say that we're going to fix anybody. I'm not going to say that we're going to make miracles happen because I cannot promise that. I can't even promise that for my neurotypical child. But what I can say is all of the data that's collected, all of the interventions that are in place is to better that individual and to make their life changing, right? To change their behavior because it is the science of behavior changes and it has always been. Um, so back then, or we were trying to figure out how people respond, right? And so we needed to use different mm -hmm. tactics, right? According to the textbook, we needed to find what is it that's changing the behavior? Is it just the environment? Is it the way that's pe that people mm -hmm. are thinking? Is it other people, SDs, coming into that individual's environment that's making them respond that way? So I think the experimental side, right? Science is, mm -hmm. is experiments and we build it upon hypotheses. So with those hypotheses, we have to give mm -hmm. them a try, right? And try it out. And I think that learning process has led to all of these stigmas that we have with ABA. But now that we have empirical-based interventions, right, and evidence-based interventions that have been proven to be positive and life-changing, we stick to those processes and we stick to those strategies to, to make life-changing events in people's lives. Um, I'm really happy that we're, um, I'm laughing because that joke about like love is, it's so funny because it's literally like a knee jerk reaction from people. Um, yeah. <laughs> is there like, is there anything that I guess you would, uh, say to someone, particularly like an autistic person who may have like grown up and had that, you know, ABA during that experimental stage. And now they're really kind of apprehensive about, say they may have a child who's on the spectrum and they're like, oh gosh, I don't know. Like what, cause I have met, you know, families like that as well. What would you say to those kind of families who remember that experimental stage and you want to like kind of reassure them that, you know, to get their buy-in, I would start with mm -hmm. education, right? Because it always starts with educating mm -hmm. the person. Um, making them feel comfortable, building that rapport, pairing mm -hmm. with the family, letting them know or be a part of the treatment, right? Because analysts write out programs, we write out interventions, but we also have the family a part of it. We get their buy-in, we get their mm -hmm. okay, right? To give their child um, anything that we provide into their environment. To take away anything, we make sure we ask the parent first before we do it. Sometimes a parent will say, absolutely not. You're not going to give this to my child. But then we state mm -hmm. the facts, right? This is what happens if we give it a try. And this is what will happen or the potential outcomes if we don't try this. And then we always give other options, right? So we can try this first. Um, and then we can try this intervention next and see if it works. And we try things for about three months to see um, if the trend line, right, is decreasing the way that we want it to decrease. Or if it's increasing, okay, now we need to say, all right, we need to make a change here. And we always talk to the caregiver um, because the, the caregiver is an important person uh, in the family's, I mean, in the child's home. If they see the data and they see the change, then they'll want us in their house. So typically it's, if a parent doesn't see the change, they, they're not going to want the treatment. They need to see some type of change and it's going to take time. We always talk about, you know, uh, behavior taking time is not going to change right away, right? So we have to have their buy-in and we have to have their buy-in for as long as we need it in order to change that individual's right. life. Um, that kind of moves me right on into the uh, next question, kind of knowing like that, um, what you said about kind of like that importance of building rapport and everything. 
what should a, a family kind of look for when it comes to a BCBA or even you could even go into like a behavioral tech as well? Like, are there things that they that they should look for and expect, like automatically expect this is what they do? And are there things that could possibly be even like red flags or, you know, things that's like if that it may not be a good fit for them? Like, what should they look for, you know, basically? So so I always make fun um, <laughs> of, of some of my counterparts when they come in and I always call them, don't go in and be the big, bad BCBA, right? Because families do not accept that. People yeah. want humans, right? They want you to come into their home. They want you to build a relationship with them and they want you to teach them the science using layman terms and not our ABA jogging. Um, I do have some counterparts that come in right away. So this will be a red flag and they are that robotic behavior analysts and they're ready to make a change as soon as they yeah. come in and they are going to ruin I've, everything I've seen those um, because and they're not fun. No. Yeah. <laughs> it does not go well at all. <laughs> those are our textbook ABA. I mean, they can answer any question you have, but you have to have so many different or wear so many different hats. Um, in this field, right? You have to know the science. That's one hat. You have to be a people's person, right? You have to know how to relate to people and you have to be empathetic, right? Some people, um, I also diagnose. So sometimes I have parents when they hear the news, they break down. Um, and then other parents are like, phew, I got an answer. Now I know why little Johnny is doing what he's doing. So you have so many different types of families and then culture, Two, you walk into someone's home, you have to know their culture before you start programming things. So one red flag I can say is, like I stated earlier, the big bad BCBA, but then other um, times when BCBAs come in and they're programming all these different programs without observing the client, right? Without taking their time to get to know the client, without knowing those antecedents. And that's what is coming before this child responds, right? And punches me or before the child, you know, hits mommy because he wants a snack. What's coming before that? What signs are we seeing? And then what is the parent's reaction to that? What is the consequence to that? Um, that's reinforcing the behavior or making the behavior go away, extinguishing it, right? So we have to look at and observe all of those factors before we go in and start treatment. So to answer your question, I would say a strong BCBA is one that comes in and that person is ready to get to know you, your family history, and the child that's in front of them. They observe the environment, the environmental setting, the individuals in that environment, and the client themselves. Also, the behavior therapist, when the BCBA is there every week, giving that therapist advice, noticing the changes in the data, providing answers to either the therapist and or the family, providing trainings for the, the family to actually implement those goals uh, when the therapist is not there. So I would say, and, and it doesn't matter how long the person has been a BCBA, what matters is the experience, right? Where did they come from? That's a good question that a family can ask. What's your experience? A lot of families go right into how long were you certified? And, and that's probably not always the right question to start with because I know some analysts have been certified for 10 years and they have never written a treatment plan or never serviced a family. And then I know others who's been certified a year, but you know what? They've been in the education field. They've been in the psych field. They've been in the mental health field. So they've experienced working with individuals with different disabilities um, and they've been able to treat them. So I would always ask, what is your background? And not how long you've been certified. I, I I definitely echo that for almost like any provider that's coming into into the home because you know like you said you can sit there and have 
you can have all of the the textbook smarts, right? And 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 know all the terminology and and everything, but if you don't know, like mm-hmm. you said, how to be walking and be human and build rapport. I I literally remember hearing a BCBA say something to the effect of like, oh yeah, you can go in and like start making change on day one. I was like, don't, don't, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) And you will never do that. Exactly. (laughs) You will never come back. And that's the end of that. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, We started touching a little bit on the, uh, the ethics and how they've kind of changed in ABA over the, over the years. Um, what are kind of like the main principles? Cause we've heard so much about like the, the negatives of it and, you know, oh, going against the principles. I don't even think, um, I know I have not like heard the actual like main principles cause I was too busy getting hit with all of the negative. So like, what are, <laughs> and seeing that constantly. So it's like, what, what are the main, you know, principles you kind of touched on what it's supposed to look like, but what are they like? What's the main theme, I guess. So I'm going to go over the four principles, right? So one is you treat others with compassion and that's that being a a person, right? Being human, that should be everyone's principle. Um, The next is dignity, having respect for the people in front of you, the people around you and their views, right? And their culture. Um, Also, how are you going to benefit this family and this individual is very important. And then ensuring your competence. You don't want to take on a case that you've never had experience in. So sometimes we come into contact with clients that have high intensity and severe behaviors, such as um, SIB uh, behaviors, and, and maybe they're banging their head, maybe they're you know hitting their head on the floor, or maybe they're very aggressive, highly aggressive, and they're hurting people, leaving what we would call permanent products, and that's just marks on other people's skin. Um, or evidence that they've been hit or, or hurt. So if you're in that situation and you don't have any competence in that area, we need to ensure that you will find another BCBA. And it's up to that analyst to ensure that they'll find another BCBA that is competent, that can support that family. Um, that, that is our responsibility and that is the code that we abide by. But ethics is such a sensitive area. Um, so sensitive that some people take it too far. A lot of analysts will call ethics on everything. Oh, that's unethical. Everything's unethical. Um, but ethics has come into place to make sure that the clients we treat, we don't, we don't gain a dual relationship with them because we all know what happens when you're treating somebody for years or even months and you're human, right? Sometimes there's just a natural attachment to that person. And so ethics is put in place to set those boundaries, right? Tell us what we can and cannot do Um, because you tend to care about that person. You see them every day. Even as a teacher, the hardest thing was the end of the year when I had to give my kids to another teacher (laughs) because they were my babies. Right. Um, Right. So that's the main reason why ethics was put in place and making sure that we understand what that individual needs why that individual needs it and what we are here for, um, because it can get misconstru- misconstrued because this field is, and I don't want to say it, but it's a money-making field. It really is mm-hmm. with certain yeah. insurances, private insurances, and some people who are not clinicians come into this um, because they can get the big bucks, but they don't know the ethics around it. So we as clinicians need to set those barriers and those boundaries in place to make sure we're focusing on the client and not everything else around the client. Right, right. I think um, a a good thing that kind of like to kind of segue in from the ethics discussion is one of the things that I've I've heard people kind of bring up again and again 
is how many hours that ABA kind of like requires. And um, I've heard like parents be like, oh, I don't know how we're going to even fit, you know, 40 hours a week in a day. Or, oh, why does a child have pretty much a full time job worth of, <laughs> worth of hours at like two years old and so forth? So um, can you kind of like explain kind of what the I guess what the science is behind those like higher our accounts and why they often have to be like, you know, 25 hours, 30 hours and, sure. and how to know if your, your child needs that or, or not. Cause unfortunately I have seen where, um, a child didn't necessarily need that much and was given it because like you said, some people unfortunately take advantage and see it as a money-making thing. So mm-hmm. I guess like, so I guess the question is like, what's the science behind the high hours and how can parents kind of make sure that we'll make sure that it's accommodating them and it's not kind of overwhelming them, I guess. Correct. Um, I'm happy you asked this question. Uh, mm. Dealing with initial assessments, there are a plethora of assessments that we administer during the initial assessment process. So we complete an adaptive assessment. That tells us how well is this individual adapting to their environment. That's the first thing we look at. And then we will administer an ABA assessment. And that can be anything from the ABLES, the AFOLS, the VBMAP, the PEAK, the SSIS. There's so many. Socially savvy, early Denver model, right? So we use one mm-hmm. of those assessments and we choose the correct assessment for that individual depending on their skill set, what they have in their repertoire, what they know, um, and then also the behaviors that they present. So any type of restrictive or repetitive behaviors that they present. That's how we choose the ABA assessment. And then the other thing that we use um, as analysts is a maladaptive behavior assessment. So what other behaviors that we didn't see during this initial process that this client um, also presents? Because sometimes when you go in for the initial assessment, you have that reactivity. The kid is going to be perfect for you because you're a new SD or person walking into the home or they're going to show out and show you everything they got. Right. So you either get one or the other. (laughs) And in order to make a true prescription, you want to know what you're getting yourself into. The hardest thing is not being able to see all of those things. And then when you start treatment, you're like, whoa, what just happened, right? And so (laughs) you never want to have those moments. So we use all of those assessments. Once we get the scores, and then we we find out the background knowledge, right? The history. How did the child or when did the child reach their developmental milestones? And we look at that across the two areas of the DSM-5, right? So the social communication area and the restrictive and the repetitive behavior area. Once that individual is diagnosed, you'll know the different levels um, of autism that they're on. And there are three levels, right? So level one is we consider it requiring support. This person may be able to speak, but they may not be able to use reciprocal communication, back and forth communication, or they may not be able to express their emotions or feelings appropriately, Um, but they can speak. They do have words. And or their restrictive or repetitive behaviors are there, but they're not so interfering, right? And so when we have those situations and the data proves those situations, I would actually recommend a treatment plan from one to 10 hours for a level one client, right? And then the next area is a level two. And that individual um, is considered requiring substantial uh, support. And so most uh, deficits and the verbal and nonverbal social communication skills are impaired, right? Uh, so they, they need a lot of support or they have simple phrase language. I want uh, go to store or uh, mommy uh, cake, right? You know what they want, but they cannot use a sentence and syntax and correct syntax. 
Um, so you, they need some more support in their social communication area and or their restrictive or repetitive behaviors interfere with their learning. So if every time uh, Johnny's hungry, he punches you in the face, then we have to teach him some functional communication to say, I'm hungry, whether it's using his vocal language or some type of visual or some type of device to support him in that area so that it satisfies what he needs. But we help him uh, receive it and contact his wants and his needs without using that inappropriate behavior. And that will be a level two. And that level, I will prescribe 11 to 25 hours, depending on the severity. Um, and then the next level, level three, is the most intense area. That area is, I cannot speak. I don't know how to say anything. I don't know how to communicate. And I need severe like support and intense, excuse me, support in this area because it's severe. Um, and or my restrictive and repetitive behaviors are so severe that I'm either hurting myself, I'm hurting someone else. It's extremely interfering with my learning and I won't be able to grow as an individual and lead an independent life. And that severe um, intensity will get you a treatment plan that's 26 to 40 hours. But we look across the data, we talk to the parent, we look at um, the observation that we see in front of us once we go to the initial assessment and that's how we make a prescription. Now a prescription... Gotcha. It's just a prescription. That's what it is. It's just like if your doctor gave you a prescription, they're not going to say, hey, Angel, you know what? I'm going to water it down because I know you're busy on Friday and you have, you know, 10 kids and you can't make it. No, mm -hmm. I'm giving you the prescription as a patient. You can either take it and say, I'm going to take this and get everything that I need to get better. Um, or mm -hmm. I'm just I don't have the time and I can't use it all. Um, but we let them know what the consequence would be. And mainly ABA, the consequence is just you may be in therapy a little longer, right? Mm -hmm. That That's just what it is. But we do understand people's situations um, because right. the goal is for us to fade out. We don't want to be a part of your life forever. As much as we gain to love you, right, and your family, um, but we want you to be so successful and the implementation and the maintenance of your child's skills that we can go away and you can do it. And that's why caregiver training is so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's important to emphasize that. And I, I, when I was working kind of like frontline as a developmental specialist, that's the one thing I'd always tell the parents is that my goal is to get to the point where you don't need me anymore. Yeah. I don't want to be there forever mm -hmm. and all. I shouldn't have to be there forever and all eternity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we want to get to the point where you have everything that you need in place to be able to move forward. And, you know, even if, you know, you have to, they graduate out of this program or, you know, something happens or you move or, you know, I can't no longer be in there, there you still have enough scaffolding in place and you've learned enough that you can continue to build on the skills regardless of what kind of the situation changes or if the environment changes. Yes. So really, really good point on that. With this uh, season in particular, the podcast, we've been talking a lot about, uh, I, I kind of shifted gears for this season, talking more about the black community, especially with a lot of stuff that was happening within the last like um, year or so. And just talking to others in the community and how it seems like, you know what, there seems there there's a need to really kind of like address autism in general in our community, because it seems like people are aware of autism to an extent but it's only to an extent yeah um can you talk a little bit about uh how uh, i guess like approaching uh how a you know uh aba professionals should kind of like look at approaching different cultures and different uh families that are 
that may be different from theirs. Not just like, I know, again, a lot of them are, are white. There's not that many of color in the ABA field or any of the autism field, if we're honest. <laughs> but let's be honest, it's just not. <laughs> we need more of us in this field. We really do. <laughs> but um, a little bit more on like how to, uh, keeping culture in mind when, you know, now kind of talking to like the, the ABA professionals, because that's something I know has been, well, not just in ABA, but in, across the field in the professional side, that's been something that's come up uh, quite a few times is how do we handle when you start bumping heads with different, with cultural differences, basically. That point, and I'm happy you brought this up, is extremely, extremely important. It's extremely important, too, to see a change. I've come into so many different situations where RBTs, those are the registered behavior technicians who actually implement the programming, have come across families because their BCBA put programming in, like, give eye contact, look at me, Johnny. Mm -hmm. And mom is like, no, that's disrespectful here. He should not look at you. Um, or African-American families, most of us grew up on spankings, right? And, mm -hmm. and sometimes the RBTs, I've even heard situations where the RBT wanted to be a mandated reporter and report the BCBA or the family because old Johnny got hit on the hand. So as analysts, as, uh, you know, the science behind spankings, we do not agree with, right? Because it is, mm -hmm. again, a positive punishment. And so we don't agree with spankings, but educating the parent is the most important thing to do. Judgment is what we cannot do. Making impulsive decisions and moves, we should not do. Um, there was a situation in um, one of the, the clients that I treated, one of the RBTs actually called the <laughs> cops on a parent because she spanked her child. And this Ooh. young man, had trauma behind it because he has autism. He was an adolescent. He had autism and they pulled him out of his house and removed him from his home because she said he got a spanking. Um, and mm. so just educating people on culture, um, educating the families, letting the families know why we don't believe in spankings and then giving them an option of what they can do instead of spanking the child. But at the same time, respecting people and respecting their culture and their household. I had another family who believes in bidets. Every time her child deficits, they have to wash up, right? They, they called mm -hmm. it the washroom. They had to wash up where the child, um, a reinforcer for that child was water. She loved water. Mm -hmm. um, so the RBT and the analysts are like, no, because that's reinforcing her not wanting to use the bathroom. And it became a thing. But we have to try to provide interventions that supports the family's culture, but at the same time decreases the, the interfering behavior that the client is engaging in. Um, so that starts with observation from that day one, from that initial assessment. It starts with asking background questions, right? What do you guys, you know, believe in? How do you respond to Johnny when he does A, B, and C, right? Or how do you interact with him when he does A, B, and C? So you want to know all of those things beforehand so that we can uh, create programming that meets the needs of the client, but at the same time, the family as well and their culture. Right. right. Kind of um, good points all, all across. Um, kind of like piggybacking off of that, like I said in um, at the first part of this like question, um, talk to me a bit about the the uh, the issues that we've had as far as getting more minorities into the field. Like first, like what paint the picture of what it is right now. Cause I know it's, it's kind of grim. And then I guess like kind of like your thoughts on what you think 
we could possibly do to get more of us, you know, in there. (laughs) So I am going to read uh, the data that I actually just looked up on the BACB. Mm -hmm. Um, So as of March 2023, 10%, 10% of us in this whole field are African-American. Over Mm -hmm. 50% are white. And so that was the biggest struggle for me um, as an analyst. There were so many times I walked in the home, and especially if my RBT was, was white or Caucasian, they would be completely shocked that I was the ana- analyst. They probably would ask me three times, are you the analyst? Are you the analyst? Mm-hmm. Yep, it's, it's me. You got what you, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get what yeah. you get. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I think, I think that is the struggle. And as a field, we have... Um, a membership called BABA. I'm actually a part of, uh, or I was a part of BABA and I'm actually renewing my membership to be a mentor with them and to try to get more African-Americans in this field. Um, some people- What does uh, BABA stand for? Black Applied Behavior Analysts. Gotcha. So we have a small group because we know that there's only a small part of us here. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, you know, we, we try to stick together. Um, but at the same time, we need more African-Americans because there's so many African-American kids that are coming up in my pipeline that need a diagnosis. And when you walk into a room with an African-American family and they see your face, they feel comforted. It, it, it's, it's just the science behind it, right? And so knowing that, mm. hey, this person is just like me, this person understands me. Um, so that's very important. But we want to make sure that um, we are getting more black individuals in this field. My company actually has uh, partnered with Temple University to help people learn more about applied behavior analysis. And I think that's important. And I think one of the things we need to do in most HBCUs is offer applied behavior analysis, applied behavior analysis courses for individuals so that they can learn more about the fields. We have clinical psychology, we have psychology, but it's not anything around ABA or um, apply behavior analysis. A lot of people that graduate from HBCUs, they're like, what is that? Um, so mm. just introducing it to, to you know, our culture, to our community. Yeah, I've that's something that um, Christian and I have actually like talked about before, the fact that it's, a, it's a, and unfortunately it's not just in the ABA community, we're seeing that issue with occupational therapy, we're seeing that issue with mm. speech therapy, we're seeing that issue with development, like all of those different parts Overall, both of those fields, for example, have a, the wait lists are so long because there's no one, (laughs) there's no one. And so you take like an already like a scarce field and then you're making it more scarce if you're looking for someone of color. And so um, I agree that a lot of the, all of these different, everything I think related to autism in general, it needs to be more available to the college level. And, and, and like you said, the HBCUs for sure, because they're, they're just coming out with like zero knowledge (laughs) like you would you and I both went to the programs we know you come out with absolutely no knowledge whatsoever uh concerning autism Mm -hmm. and that's and that's a big thing um going into uh autism in the the black community I know and I think you you probably have the stats for this because I've seen the same stats um a lot of people I don't think realize especially this the most recent data it's kind of flipped the script a little bit as far as the diagnosis uh, goes of autism in general. If you want to kind of like talk, I'm, I'm going to let you say what it is, but <laughs> it, it it totally kind of flipped script recently. Yeah. So recently um, there are more African-American children and adolescents being diagnosed for autism. And it's actually 
a phenomenal thing because when I started this whole uh, diagnostic uh, realm, I noticed that most African-American children that were coming in were adolescents. And I would ask mom, why did you wait so long? This kid is 11, 12, 13 years old. What happened? And they're like, I didn't, I didn't know what this was, right? I thought it was a speech right. issue because they had those social communication deficits. Um, somebody told me he needed OT or somebody told me he needed PT. So I went through all these different therapies, not even understanding or knowing that my child had autism. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until I met this teacher or it wasn't until I met my neighbor and she had a child with autism, right? So I feel like in our community, we always uh, came into encounter with someone that said, mm, I think that's something else, right? And it's sad because these are kids that go to see a doctor, a pediatrician every year. But what I learned too in my company is most pediatricians do not know what autism is either. Yeah. They have Especially the ones who have been in for like 30, 40 years in yes. the field. And they're like, oh, that wasn't a thing when I first, um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> they <laughs> cannot detect the symptoms. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's sad. It's sad. And we fall short. And we fall short, too, because we have Medicaid, right? And there's so many barriers mm-hmm. to Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of different areas where we do fall short. But I am excited to know that, again, the CDC states that 3% of African-Americans are being diagnosed versus our 2% of our counterparts that um, are being diagnosed with autism. So I'm right, happy that we're right. getting more support. And I, I think it's also that um, I think our community is starting, like I said, we're getting more aware of it. I think it's just kind of one, uh, the essence of actually speaking up and, and recognizing, hey, and I always tell parents, especially my minority parents, if you have a gut instinct that something is off, that something is different. And you go to the pediatrician, and they're like, oh, no, let's just, you know, kick it down the can. I said, you're, you can go and get a second opinion. Yes. You can go and, 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 and do that. And I, they sometimes seemed almost surprised that they can do that. I said, yeah, you don't have to, you know, if your instinct is telling you something is wrong, is off there, then yeah. it's wrong. And what I always yeah. tell parents when I talk to them after the diagnosis or when I talk to them in the beginning of a treatment phase you as a parent are in the driver's seat. You mm-hmm. control your child's life. Anything, and I tell them, even myself, if there's something that I say that you're questioning, research it, look it yeah. up, feel the most comfortable before you agree to this treatment. And the good news is you can always pull apart when you're like, Ugh, I'm uncomfortable and then go right back to it. The only thing that yeah. you have to remember is there are long wait lists, right? So when you're ready to mm-hmm. go back to it, you gotta be ready for that wait list as well. Um, and that's right. something that with my company, we pride ourselves on. So we know what's out there. We know that people are on the wait list for years, months mm-hmm. on end. We know that people are not getting treatment for six and three months on end. So we try to get people into treatment within three days. We try to get the diagnosis done within two weeks um, because some people just want the answer, right? I want right. to know why my child is doing this. And once they have that answer, then they're okay with either, am I going to move forward with this or am I not going to move forward with this? Now I can get my child an IEP. Now I can get my child the supports and accommodations that they need in the classroom. And then here in Florida, we also have the Gardner Scholarship, right? We call it the Family Empowerment Scholarship now, where families can get uh, financial support 
um, to go to private schools that support uh, children with autism or to build a school in their in their homes and build out a curriculum and support their own child. So I am happy we have that funding in place because that was another barrier for our culture, right? We just don't have the funding. Some of us just don't have health insurance. So we have right. no way to fund this therapy, whereas our white counterparts, they have all the money, right? Some of them pay out of pocket. We can never afford to do that. I can't even afford to do that. Um, but you have people who are more fortunate that can. So I think that disparity is from our economic status, right? Our education, just not knowing what is autism, what are these symptoms? I don't know what he's doing. Um, and then not having the resources. Maybe my pediatrician doesn't know the symptoms either, or maybe I just didn't come into contact with the right person to teach me. Right. Yeah. That I think, especially here in um, our area, like Palm Beach County, I, I can't speak on like Broward, but I know Palm Beach County for sure. The big thing is that the resources, I, I've learned that the resources are there. It's just getting the families connected to them and the families either not knowing that they exist, not knowing that they have options and not knowing how to to um, get there, which is, you know, why, like I said, we need to have more um, agencies that are kind of like aware of that and kind of know, hey, you know, helping with that whole bridging process, which is why we have, you know, uh, agencies such as yours, which is why we have agencies such as like FAU Card, who have been on before to help kind of, and what I do, like with my business, Spark Guidance, to help kind of like bridge that knowledge in those gaps so that, you know, our community has as much of all of, if not more of the resources available to them. Because that, that's a huge issue I've noticed, not just down here, but like across the country, but I've definitely seen it down here. Um, I know that you mentioned kind of like a uh, wait list and the, and the length. That's a, that's a big issue with families, yes. like a huge, yes. a huge one. And it's across the board for, I've noticed nearly all autism services, everything from assessments all the way to uh, ABA. Although ABA moves, it tends to move a little bit faster, but I think with, when it comes to things like additional services, like speech therapist or OT therapist, is it because there's just not enough of them? Yes. <laughs> and mm -hmm. and OT, even more specifically, there are OTs, but I've also learned that not all of them are knowledgeable about sensory and, and sensory processing. And that's a big thing because if you can't get that, you know, figured out, <laughs> it's going to make everything about 20 <laughs> times harder <laughs> for it, everyone. It, it is. It is. <laughs> yeah. and, and the good thing is with ABA, we support, I mean, we don't call it sensory, we call it automatic, mm -hmm. but people, like I said earlier, understand sensory. Um, so mm -hmm. we do work on those automatic behaviors, but c collaboration mm -hmm. is everything, right? And coordinating with yeah. other providers just benefits the child even more. Yeah. That's where I've seen it kind of work best when everyone is kind of, uh, there's usually kind of like one in the team that I know when I worked for Early Steps, my job as an infantile developmental specialist, I was kind of the main person who was supposed to kind of help bring everybody together. But that's when the most like kind of got work really got done and movement really happened when you had like, if they had ABA, you had a, uh, at the minute you had the BCBA, you had the occupational therapist, you had the speech therapist, you had myself, and we were all talking with the parents wow. and creating and, and yeah, that's like the perfect the ideal world, treatment kind team, of. right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's the dream team the right dream there. Team. <laughs> so families, that's like what that's like the dream team that you. Good luck getting that, good but luck. that's like. <laughs> but like every now and then, it did end up happening. So I'm I'm happy you kind of mentioned that that the collaboration part is like so important. So as well. 
when it comes to like, I guess, um, educating, you started talking a little bit at the beginning about, uh, educating caregivers. Um, what does, what does that look like from the ABA standpoint? I know what it looks like from like the developmental standpoint, what it looks like from, I kind of know what it looks like from like the speech, speech standpoint. What does that look like from the ABA side when so, you say like caregiver Yeah. Training? So when we, um, prescribe a treatment plan for an individual, we prescribe direct service hours and that would be your 10, 40, 25 hour treatment plan. And that's what the therapist would uh, directly implement with the individual child. But then we also have units or hours that we schedule out for the parents, specifically for caregiver training. And that is so crucial to the benefit of the treatment because if the parent is blindsided or if you don't have their buy-in or if they don't know what we're doing, they won't be on board and the treatment won't be consistent. So what does parent training look like? Parent training can be a hands-on experience. Some parents, like I said, are in single family households and they're like, girl, I got to cook. I don't have time to sit down with you. I'm not. And, and right. you're so funny because <laughs> the realest parents are in our community and they're like, girl, I know you mm -hmm. want to sit here and give me the textbook, right? but I, I, I'm not. So, but you know what? I love that. I love when they do that because there's nothing better than seeing them walk around and interact with little Johnny. I'm like, oh, don't do that. This is why we don't do that. Do this instead. And you kind of get them uh, to engage in your treatment inadvertently, right? Without them mm -hmm. even knowing that they're doing it. Um, because right. some people don't want to sit down and hear the knowledge because who wants to do that, right? Who wants to sit in the classroom for 30, 40 minutes? And sometimes our parent training units are an hour, two hours. Specifically for my company, we do 10%. So if the treatment plan is 20 hours for a prescription, we'll do two hours of parent training. And so, um, with that parent training, we teach them about ABA, especially if it's their first experience, right? What is this? What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Uh, we teach them about reinforcement. We teach them about punishment procedures. We teach them about functions, extinction bursts, uh, spontaneous extinction bursts, cyclical behaviors. And I'm, I know I'm, I'm throwing all these terms out there. And the reason why I'm throwing all these terms out there is because these terms are what we implement. And I would love for the parents to know the terms. Um, because mm -hmm. they don't understand it when we're just speaking on it. And, and just like, you know, punishment and positive and negative, the way that the layman looks at it and hears it um, and understands it is different um, than the way that it is applied and applied behavior analysis. So I want right. them to understand the whole treatment, you know, everything behind what we're doing and why we're doing it. And this is science. So some things we do may not work. It's just, it is what it is, but then we move on to the next. Okay, this didn't work. Now let me see if this system or this strategy would work for uh, little Johnny. But the parents need to be involved because what we don't want is to fall back into that stigma. Oh, my analyst did something and it didn't work. And, you know, now my child is worse. So we always want their buy-in. We always ask, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is going to be a punishment procedure, but this is how we're going to implement it, right? This is how I want you to implement it. And this is how I want you to reinforce him after he engages in that response, right? So just teaching them how to do it. And once you build that relationship and that trust is there, you can tell a family anything, right? And mm -hmm. they believe in you and they believe in the science. And that's the goal. That's the goal here. Mm -hmm. You also want them to believe that you're not going to make a miracle happen. Have I seen miracles happen? Absolutely. Probably the most rewarding part of my job. But I would never promise that, right? Because every individual is different. Every experience is different and everyone's buy-in is different. So we right. just have to know who we're working with, what we have, what resources we have, and how we're going to make that change. But 
parent training is probably the most important part of the treatment. I'm also happy that that has gotten more uh, focus in uh, not just in ABA, but like across the board in autism. Because before, I think it was very much focused on expert comes in, treats the child, boom, everything is fluffy, and then and then leaves. And I think over time, across the board, we kind of learned, okay, we're actually going to have to teach the parents yeah. like how to do some of these things too, if mm-hmm. we want it to be, if we want, like you said, to generalize it and have it work across environments and be and able to, you know, yeah, and people and be consistent. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm... I'm always happy to hear that there, you know, when there's an emphasis on uh, making sure the caregivers are kind of up to speed too. Now, when it comes to say like schools, um, <laughs> <laughs> we love schools. And, <laughs> I don't, I don't know about like your experiences. Mine have been very mich- mixed bag because it's kind of either uh, it's either they are all gun ho and just yes uh, we're going to be sponges and and eat it all up uh they may be kind of like hesitant but they warm up as you go along or they're just just straight up uh, don't bring that in here you know kind of thing or or they think i I sometimes think that they think that we're kind of judging their that's exactly what it is angel exactly so (laughs) it's it's so funny because my hardest job was uh, when I entered a charter school here in Florida and I was a behavior interventionalist. And I think mm-hmm. that was the hardest job because before that I was a teacher, right? And then I moved up to this uh, behaviorist in the school and I started going into classrooms and observing and people dislike that more than anything because they think you're in there to judge them. Um, yeah. And so trying to get their buy-in and trying to get them to implement different strategies, they just don't understand it. I honestly think the best setting to target first, especially if you have a school-aged child, is to get some caregiver training with the teacher. Making the teacher know, helping them to understand, I am not against you. I'm here to work with you, right? I'm here. Everything you expect from this child, I'm here to ensure that he will get it done. He may not get it done as fast as you want. He may not get it done, you know, the way you want exactly, but he's going to get it done. Um, And so they they think that we come in, like you said, and we're there to judge them and uh, we're, we're there to point our fingers. Or the other thing I fell into was I don't have the time to do this. I, yeah. I don't have the time to implement yep. this. I have 20 other kids. If I lose yep. one or two, I'm okay, you know, because I got 20 others um, that I need to be responsible for. Mm-hmm. And then the other uh, caveat there is they don't have funding, most district schools. Yep. And so they can't get additional resources. And then they're not meeting the child's IEP, which then in turn has to send that, that child to a school for children with autism. And what parents want more is for their child that's diagnosed autism to be in an inclusive setting because they want them to learn from their counterparts, right? They want them to be able to interact with different um, children with varying disabilities and abilities um, and not the same disability or ability, just like humans, right? So it's a struggle. It's a major, major struggle. And so I think it was hardest for me, again, because I was the parent advocate, whereas when these IEP meetings were happening, they already had an answer before the parent already w- walked in. And I'm like, no, we're going to give this yeah. child an opportunity. No, we're going to make these accommodations and give them a try and collect data and see if it's working before we just dismiss this child. But because the teacher is in a classroom with 24 or more kids, it's just easier to just dismiss the child or ignore yeah. them. 
right? So you either get the aggressive behaviors that's being presented, that's the throwing the chair, hitting, and then you have all these different functions, right, that the child is satisfying from themselves. Maybe they don't want to do the work. Maybe it's too hard. Maybe I can't. So they know if I throw this chair, my teacher's going to kick me out. So now I just escaped it, right? Um, so now every time math is math time, I'm going to throw this chair so I can get kicked out. They learn their environment and they learn to manipulate it. And then the adverse of that is children who engage in these automatic behaviors, who sit there quiet because they're stimming, Right. They're not a problem for the teacher because they're quiet. And then when they're quiet, they're ignored. But are they learning? And are you supporting them? So uh, schools are the most difficult setting. I I mean, that's one of my goals to start start an ABA school that can support, you know, the curriculum and then also the treatment. Yeah, I know that. That I also, in my experience, that's been the most difficult, like, like ones to kind of work in for all of those reasons, and just the fact that, um, like you said, they think that you're judging, um, and a lot of times, another thing I've noticed is sometimes the teachers and the, the those on the you know on the front line levels may say, oh yeah, we need this, but the ones higher up may be like, nah, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. it could be because of funding, it could be because they think they know better, but it it's uh yeah, that's that's one of the more difficult areas, and I would I would love to see it get to the point where you know we can have more of those you know more of that kind of everyone kind of, again, like everyone kind of working together and everyone kind of getting on the same page. So far, the the main school around here that I see that really seems to embrace that is Alamanda. Okay. Um, up in Palm Beach Gardens. They're, they've kind of become, I think, the flagship for having, like, they have, like, classrooms, like, I think they have, like, 11 or 12, like, oh, wow. autism-based classrooms. But things like lunch and recess and all those kind of things are all done with the entire, you know, class, the entire school. So it's... um. They, they do inclusion, but they also make sure that they have time to kind of like, you know, teach skills and everything. And they want to be kind of like become like the flagship ideal, especially them. now that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it they fought to get to that point. <laughs> I, I know that. <laughs> but well, well, nothing um, meaningful hope- is, is, is easy. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I hope that they become kind of like the flag flagship going forward, especially when it comes to public school. Um. Before we kind of like wrap up, I want to know, is there one, anything else that you wanted to kind of uh, share? Uh, if there's anything you want to say about the organization, if okay. you want to uh, let people know how to contact you, um, anything you want to kind of say before we kind of wrap up? Because it's been a great discussion. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so first and foremost, for parents who are looking for answers, get the answers that you are looking for. Do not guess. Mm-hmm. Um, do not try to allow other people uh, to figure it out for your child, especially if your child does not have a voice. Be that voice for them. Go through all of these tests. Go through uh, you know, everything that you need to go through that will benefit the individual. If you don't think it's autism, but you just want to go to that diagnosis to see if it is autism, do it. And if you don't agree with it, you don't have to. So the one thing I would always want to embed in every parent is, again, you are the driver in the seat. You are the voice for your child. Be that voice um, and do what's best for them if you can. I am actually the, as I said earlier, the vice president of assessments for ABA Centers of Florida. So you can contact me on their website is www.abacentersofflorida.com. My telephone number is 772-801-9132. If you want to come in for an evaluation, um, we'll be happy to evaluate your son, your daughter, your adult friend. Uh, so we, we evaluate all ages. It does not matter. 
Um, and then we also have a peer review with you and we, we allow you to know what symptoms we did see. Do those symptoms meet autism if they don't meet autism? Always question your treatment plans if you are going through ABA service. Tell the analyst to give you the data. The data should be there. The data should prove the prescription. Also know a prescription is only a prescription. So you can meet it, right? And do, you know, what's best to get the most speedy therapy. But we all know life happens and maybe you just don't have the time uh, to fulfill that prescription. The only thing that means is the therapy is just going to take longer. That's it. Um, so, so, so get that prescription. Understand that prescription. Let the analysts explain the programs that they are setting for your child, why they are setting those programs, the behaviors that they came up with. How did they come up with those behaviors? The functions, understand those functions so that you can satisfy them. I'm not going to get into that, but if you're deciding to, you know, go into ABA, ask them, what are the functions of my child's behavior so that you know how to support them? Um, but I am here. I'm happy to help. I'm so happy to be a part of this podcast. Angel, so thank you for inviting me. Oh, no problem. No problem at all. Like I said um, in the beginning, it's like I think it's important to um, amplify our voices in particular in this field because there are, like I said, not just in the ABA field, but also in the autism field, There, there's not a lot of us. And so when I when I do find us, <laughs> I, want to amplify, I want to help amplify us, you know? Yeah, me too. <laughs> For sure. Thank you, Patiba, again for coming on. I greatly appreciate you being on. And for anyone out there who, again, she gave her contact information. So if you want to contact her and reach out because you have questions or are interested in possible assessments, want to, you know, have more questions about ABA, please contact her. And if you are someone who is interested in the services that I give with Spark Guidance, again, I do trainings for daycare centers, schools, uh, offices who want to know more about, you know, nonprofits who want to know more about autism in general, or if you are interested in being on the podcast yourself, feel free to hit me up. Uh, you can email me at um, angelw, A-N-G-E-L-W, at sparkguidance.com. That's S-P-A-R-C-G-U-I-D-A-N-C-E.com. You can also find, uh, eventually, once we get this episode up, this episode and all the previous episodes of the podcast on www.sparkup autism.com so again the s-p-a-r-c-u-p-a-u-t-i-s-m.com so that and you could also go and find spark up on spotify it's on apple it's on it's on i think every platform related to podcasting known to man at this point that is it for our episode again thank you so much to our guests and i hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your time and i will talk to you again soon and remember be blessed don't be stressed bye